Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Thank you so much to Audible for sponsoring today's episode. For those of you who don't know, Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, business motivation, and also podcasts. They've recently launched their newest plan called Audible Plus. With Audible Plus, you get full access to their Plus catalog filled with thousands of select originals, audiobooks, and podcasts, and connects you to just amazing content. The best time to try it is now with their holiday offer, because for only $4.99, a month for your first six months. This is a fantastic deal. And all you have to do to get it is visit audible.com slash Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, or text Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, to 500-500. Again, visit audible.com slash Zibby or text Zibby to 500-500. I love Audible and listen all the time in my car and on walks. I recently finished Searching for Sylvie Lee by Jean Kwok, also Small Animals by Kim Brooks, His Only Wife by Peace Medi and also On All Fronts by Clarissa Ward. So those are four of my recent ones. Um, I hope you'll join me in checking out Audible, audible.com slash Zibby or text Zibby to 500-500. Did I say that enough times? Julie Buxbaum is the New York Times bestselling author of Tell Me Three Things, her young adult debut, What to Say Next, Hope and Other Punchlines, and now Admission. She's the author of two critically acclaimed novels for adults, The Opposite of Love and After You. Her work has been translated into 25 languages. Julie's writing has appeared in various publications, including the New York Times. She's a former lawyer and graduate of Harvard Law School and lives in Los Angeles with her husband, two children, and more books than is reasonable. I actually interviewed Julie like months ago, and then her pub date was pushed due to the pandemic. So this might sound a little outdated, perhaps, or maybe just like a funny trip down memory lane, but all the themes of her amazing novel are still completely relevant as it refers to a fictionalized version, perhaps, of the college admission scandal, which had rocked Los Angeles and the whole country. So listen in. Congrats to Julie for finally getting your book out into the world. And I hope you all enjoy our conversation, which was so much fun. Welcome, Julie. Thanks for coming on Monster and Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to do this. Me too. Finally. I feel like we met so long ago now. It was like, what, months and months. So it's. I'm delighted we're doing this. <laughs> Thank you. As I just was telling you, I, you're a really great writer, and it was really a pleasure to read this book. And so topical. Can you please tell listeners what Admission is about? Sure. Admission is about this girl, Chloe Winberger, who at first glance seems to have everything. She just got asked to the prom by the boy she's had a crush on since middle school. Her mom, who's a B-list celebrity, is on her way to the B-plus list. And she just got into the college of her dreams. So, you know, she is living the life until one day her doorbell rings at 6 a.m. in the morning and the FBI shows up to arrest her mother in a nationwide college admissions scandal. 
And from there, her entire life falls apart. And it basically asks the question, first of all, what did Chloe know and when did she know it? Will her mother go to jail? Will she go to jail? And I think more importantly, it fundamentally asks, what does it mean to be complicit? And what does it mean to want to achieve? <laughs> like, what does the success really mean? Like, what does achievement mean to her mom? What does it mean to her? I don't know. Just adding my two cents. <laughs> yep. And, and at what cost? At right? what cost? What exactly. So you had this interesting note at the beginning about how you were mid-work on another novel and then this whole scandal broke and you felt you were cheating on the characters you had been writing on by wanting to write this book. So tell me what that process was like. What happened? So when the story broke, I started reading the articles just like everybody else, except I wasn't like everybody else. I became unhealthily obsessed. It's all I could think about. I used to be a lawyer and so I ended up reading the 200-page complaint. And I got suddenly really wrapped up in what wasn't being covered by the media. I felt like the media definitely focused on the adults for good reason, because they were the ones who were arrested. But I kept thinking about what it must be like to wake up one morning and have your entire reality change fundamentally. And what it must be like to be the teenagers at the center of this huge, you know, media fallout. And then I started thinking about this character, Chloe, and I fully understood who she was from day one. And so and slowly that story sort of started to unfold in my mind. I knew exactly what was going to happen. I took a few days to just figure out if there was a full novel there before I sent that email to my agent editor being like, hey, can I drop the book I'm writing and write this whole other thing? And is that okay? But I just knew. Like I just, every once in a while as a writer, you sort of can see the whole thing and it, it doesn't happen often. And it's super lucky when it does. And in this case, I could just, I could just see it. And so I did. I, I, thought about it for a few days. And then I called my agent and editor and I was like, please don't kill me. But can I write this whole other book and put aside the 150 pages I've already written? And they were kind of, they were totally game. They were like, just as long as you write fast. And, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened to those characters that you cheated on? Like what happened to that book? So I have, I have reconciled with them, <laughs> reconciled with them and, and we've been hanging out lately. And I'm working on that book now. Well, see, so it all worked out. <laughs> it did. It's, it's funny. I kind of feel like they're still a little mad at me. Like they're a little bit slower to show themselves. And it hasn't been as natural a process as admission was. And it's partially, I think, because I left them. And they're sort of like, I'm, I'm a little pissed off, Julie. <laughs> I'm not going to reveal myself as easily this time. Well, there is no lack of you bringing your characters to life. They are clearly, you are in conversation with them. And <laughs> that's, I guess that's what it takes. I mean, to make them seem so real in a book, you have to actually believe that they're real. Yeah, uh, they do. I mean, they do feel very real to me. I realize that sounds a little bananas, but, but they do seem to have, there's some, I think often in the, the novel writing process, there seems to be some outer force that you can't control and you just have to sort of let yourself be open to it. And sometimes it's easier and sometimes it's harder, which is probably one of the most frustrating things about what I do. Hmm. I mean, I have to say, like, I feel like some characters in fiction are so real that I still think about them the way I would an old friend. So as the mm -hmm. writer, you must have to have that to the nth degree to be able to convey that to the reader. I mean, this is yeah, obvious, but just, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, one weird thing about that, though, is they feel so real to me when I'm writing the book. But once the book is out in the world, I actually completely let them go and stop thinking about them. Hmm. They sort of now no longer belong to me and now sort of belong to the reader, which is something I didn't expect. And often I'll like revisit a book I previously written for some reason, maybe an interview or something. And I'll be like, oh, my God, I have no memory of having written any of this. <laughs> it's sort of 
happened in a whole other state. It's really bizarre. <laughs> That's sort of how I feel about like one of my like the kid's whole childhood. It's like the beginning years. I'm like, I know I was there. I see the pictures, but I don't know. I don't know what your first word was. I don't remember. <laughs> There's like no processing whatsoever. Yeah. You're just getting through. It. Yeah. Just yeah. getting through. <laughs> the whole thing is like childbirth. I think making books and childbirth are ridiculously similar. One's a little uglier. I feel like though the way you're saying about sending your kids into the world, like you're almost like a surrogate. You're acting as a surrogate for the child versus the mother in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like, anyway. Yeah. Because you're because then you you just say goodbye. Yeah, you you hand it off. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah. I think surrogacy is actually a really great example. Well, now that we nailed that. <laughs> <laughs> Like you, by the way, I was totally riveted and obsessed with the admission scandal. Probably not quite as deep a dive into the whole thing as you took, but it was hard not to wonder and think about, oh my gosh, these poor kids, like if they didn't know or did they know, but if they didn't know, like how that would feel and to feel like that their parents had so little faith in them in a way that they would be willing to do all of this behind their backs. Like, what does that say about their confidence? How, how are these kids going to process? So when you were doing all this research, did you end up talking to any of the actual people this happened to or any celebrity children or people who have had some scandal like this happen to them? Or was it more your imagination? No, I intentionally didn't because I wanted to make sure I told my character story and that's a fictional story. I wasn't trying to tell the actual college admissions story. I think they're probably, those people will probably write their own books one day. And I didn't want to steal their stories. I was more interested in sort of this particular character who is wrestling with what she knew and what she didn't know. I found I had real empathy for her, but I didn't always like her. And I thought that was important as the author not to sort of be a hundred percent on board with everything she did because she made a million mistakes throughout the book. I think what was more interesting to me was the thematic concept of willful ignorance and sort of doing a deep dive into when we know things but don't really know them and mm -hmm. don't, or we know things but we don't want to know them and what that kind of feels like in our bodies and our minds. I did do some research on shame and vulnerability though. Not that you had to. I was just wondering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when Chloe tells her mom, when she overhears her mom trying to basically sell her diagnosis of ADHD, which she doesn't even have, so that she can take her SATs on time, she was like, well, time isn't the problem. Not being able to figure out the answers is, yeah. right? Tell me about this, how she first started to like get some glimmers and just how that came to be. Well, I think what's so interesting about the college admission scandal is that it's so much bigger than the college admission scandal. It just sort of highlights all these bigger issues that are going on in society. So the people who are arrested in the college admission scandal are not the first people to get their kids a diagnosis to get them better times on a test. This has been going on for years and years and years, where people literally pay a doctor to give their kids a diagnosis so they get more time on a test, not only in high school, but for when they go to college so they can do better there too. And it's just one of the many ways in which people who have a lot of money can buy their way into better outcomes for their children. And it's this interesting space where kids who are at the center of it may or may not know whether diagnosis actually fits, right? They're not an expert and an adult is telling them that it fits. And it sort of goes along, I think, with this whole thematic question of over-trusting experts in a sense, like buying your way into more information as opposed to trusting your instincts. Interesting. Do you feel like your book is trying to give some sort of lesson or take a point of view on it? Or do, were you trying to do that? Or were you just sort of trying to paint the picture and let the reader decide? Yeah, I don't, I don't like to moralize. Instead, I like to have characters wrestle with questions. Mm -hmm. 
And I think a lot of these questions don't actually have answers, right? Or definitive answers, at least. And so instead of, you know, taking this higher moral ground, instead, I just wanted to examine these questions that have come up for these particular people and also come up in my everyday life too, as a parent. It's so true. It's always like, how do you make sure your kid has the opportunities for success, but within reason? I mean, they are who they are, right? That's why I feel like one of the saddest parts is like, you know, maybe Chloe, like she shouldn't be at that particular school. (laughs) Like maybe that's not the right, it's not going to be the right college for her. Like maybe she'd be really happy at a different college. That would be a much better fit. (laughs) And not just Chloe, but so many people who, you know, I mean, I personally have moved my kids school so many times. I, (laughs) cause I really believe like they need the right school for them and it might, it might have a great name and all, but if it's not the right fit, it is not going to do anyone any favor in the long run. So, but I think that even when I pulled my kid out of one school, people are like, oh, you're so brave. And I'm like, I'm not brave. I'm like, this is my child and I'm trying to maintain their sanity. And you know what I mean? So I think that's exactly right. But I think it's really difficult to figure out actually what the right thing is for your kid when you're living in this larger community of people who are telling you something different than what you believe, right? Like if my neighbor's kid is having her daughter take Mandarin Mm -hmm. in fourth grade, should my daughter be taking Mandarin? No, my daughter should not be taking Mandarin. She's not interested in Mandarin. But there's always this moment of, well, if my larger community is doing something and all these other kids are getting this advantage, am I hurting my child by taking this sort of different stand? I think it gets really complicated. It's really a shame because I feel like in mothering or parenting or fathering or whatever, I don't know, these questions come up. Like It's almost like you're being taught to not trust your instincts at all. And in, exactly. in, in the most intimate relationship in your entire life where you know the person better than anything, it really actually makes no sense when you think about it. But I'm just like you, like, oh, you know, everybody signed up for this class. Like, well, I don't know. No. Do I, do I care if my daughter can needlepoint or, you know, I mean, whatever it is that like everybody seems to be doing when I know it's not right. I don't know. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with you. And I think there's also this weird culture of putting your kid first above the community. And that's also really uncomfortable. And I haven't quite figured out how you make that all work. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of a really basic example, but there was this piece in New York Magazine maybe five, 10 years ago. And I remember reading it, it stuck with me. And the, they quote, posed this question about ethical parenting. And one of the questions they said is, say your kid has this really important standardized test tomorrow, but just before your kid goes to bed, you notice they have lice. Do you keep them up late combing out the lice? Or do you pretend like you haven't seen the lice and you send your kid to school to take the standardized test so they won't be tired and they'll be best prepared, but your kid probably knows you know they have lice. And so what lesson are you teaching your kid by sending them with lice? What lesson are you teaching your kid by keeping them home up too late for the SAT or whatever test it is? And I think there are a million micro examples of this in parenting where you have to sort of balance where I think a lot of people tend to put their kid above the community when we should be putting the community above our kids. And talking to you now in the midst of the coronavirus and we're all stuck at home, this is like so timely, right? I mean, (laughs) to you. Like we're all hoarding toilet paper because we want to make sure that we have enough at the expense of our neighbors. And it's, I, I know I've spent many hours talking to my friends about what is hoarding here. If I can get that extra box of wipes, should I, or should I save it for someone else? And it's impossible to know any of these answers, but I feel like the first step at least is to notice our privilege and and to grapple with it. The grocery store where I am ended up limiting people to two items. Like you could only take two of the same types of items and they were policing it at the end because there was no internal checks and balances. Like, I don't know. It's obviously hard for everybody (laughs) to know. And then also to remember that like, you know, we're talking about 
toilet paper and the coronavirus. And five seconds ago, I was talking about Mandarin lessons, right? And like Mandarin lessons do not matter. (laughs) But as parents, we sort of forget our privilege bubbles. And for a second, it does seem like it matters, but it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. None of it matters, really. I mean, now that we're home, it's like all those extracurriculars, it's so, we don't need them. Like, I don't know about you, like my kids are in school and then they had stuff after school, especially my littlest guy who's still in preschool. And now all the after school places are getting in touch to be like, we've developed like a Zoom thing for after school. And I'm like, no way. If I could get him through a couple hours of school, are you kidding me? Like, forget it. He'll just play. But during the year at school, you don't say that. You don't have that same attitude. And I think there's something really important about teaching our kids, first of all, how to be bored, how to be resilient. And these are the exact opposite of the things that are taught by overscheduling them and making sure they're taking Mandarin and everything else. I don't know why I keep bringing up Mandarin as the example, but (laughs) I think you get my point. Yeah, I get your point. (laughs) I feel like I'm going so way off topic. I'm so sorry. I know. No, but you know what? I find this really interesting. I don't know. This is what it's all about. Like, I mean, every... Anybody out there who has a child or who has friends with children or whatever, this is the culture, this is the pressure, and your book is just like a total perfect example. It's like the cherry on top of the whole thing, or that's the wrong analogy, but you know, it's a, when everything comes to, this is like the, (laughs) I can't even find the words, like the extreme example of the whole phenomenon. So it's, I I think it's topical. And I think the reason why it struck such a chord with so many people, the scandal itself, is I think it works its way down through all segments of society. It's not just the very top. I think middle-class parents are also struggling to keep their kids doing all these things that comparative parenting has sort of taken over as the model and sort of the dream kind of, not dream, the, the sort of the parenting you're supposed to be doing when in fact it's making all of us struggle. Yeah. And like, when does it end? Like, when is it okay? Like, is it okay to have an SAT tutor? Like, should, you know, they try to say, you know, all these things that we take for granted, should we not, should nobody go out and buy those SAT books? Like, how far back do we have to to go? I mean, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask with the book. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But my char- my character starts to question all of those things because this is someone with great privilege who hasn't actually taken the time to sort of examine her own privilege. And one of the great joys of the book was forcing her to do that. I love how in the beginning, her mother, and I love how you say going from a B to a B plus actress. How does one even know that they're crossing that threshold? That's my question. But in the beginning, she has this whole photo shoot for, I think, Marie Claire, where she's baking pancakes and she's dressed in all like color coordinating clothes. And her friend comes over and is like, what, you know, basically what's up with your mother? You know, And she's like, oh no, photo shoot. She would never, you know, carbs and she would never be doing this on a Saturday morning. And that's not the type of mom she is. So, you know, it also raises into question just like the very crux of the mother-child or parent-child relationship and that trust. I mean, I know I mentioned this before, but I don't know. Like, what does it say if if your mother is saying that she doesn't believe in you, really? What does that mean? I don't know. Exactly. I mean, one thing that was really important to me when writing the book is, yes, the mom is the villain of the story. She, at no point does anyone question her guilt, except for maybe the mom herself but everyone else knows she is guilty. That is at no point part of the story. But she is also an incredibly loving mother and cares deeply about her child. Obviously, she goes about it completely the wrong way, but at no point do we doubt whether she loves Chloe and wants what's best for her. She just sort of got confused, I Mm -hmm. guess. I mean, that's probably the kindest way to put it. 
you know, messed up in her way, her own way of trying to do what was best for her daughter. Also what was best for her. I mean, there's a whole reputational angle to all of this as well, but it, it does, it poses the question about whether this kind of parenting, this sort of hyper snowplow clearing all obstacles for your kid so your kid can climb as high as they can possibly climb is actually what's best for children, right? Like it teaches them that we don't think they're capable, whether they see it or not, they eventually learn that lesson that they couldn't do it on their own. And I think that's really dangerous. I agree. And that's what we see Chloe sort of coming to terms with. Well, you did a good job. And obviously, I mean, this book is like, this. I feel like this is such a good book club type, you know, people are going to sit around and be like, well, what do you think? Or what would you do in that situation? Or it's such a conversation starter because it's a topic that's on all of our minds. So it's really, it's great. <laughs> well, if anyone out there is doing any Zoom book clubs, I am free <laughs> because I'm not leaving my house. I just so. started a Zoom book club, actually. I saw. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I just did that. So maybe we can make that work. <laughs> Let's see what else. So one thing that I also thought really propelled the story along was how you did alternating chapters between now and then until it basically all came together. That was so cool. How did you come up with that? Was that part of your initial vision when you saw the whole thing? It was, a yes, exactly. I knew that from the very beginning. I had never done a before and now type thing, but with this particular story, I felt like it needed it for narrative suspense because the then of her sort of... so. Let me just explain sort of what it was. It is in the book. The book starts with the FBI coming and arresting Chloe's mom. And then it flips back to the the fall of her senior year when she's applying to colleges. And then each chapter goes back and forth between then and now. And I felt like the narrative suspense of the then needed us to already know what happened in the now. So each action we're watching from this sort of way higher narrative level of knowing what's really happening while Chloe doesn't actually, or we, we, I felt like the narrative suspense wasn't, did they cheat? The narrative suspense is Chloe's awareness of how much they cheated and when. Yeah. Which is super interesting. Yeah. And I think I felt like it unfolds in a different way because of that. Yeah. And it made it really page turning plus the short chapters. I don't know. I just, it was like, it wasn't a thriller at all, but it, it had that same kind of intensity, like pacing, as a, as yeah. one of those types of books, I, I thought. But thank you. No, I sure. really want it to be propulsive. I wanted you not to want to put it down. I was going to say propulsive, but I feel like I've been using that word so often. <laughs> it's, a, it's a slightly I, gross word, right? It, like, I mean, at first I heard it, and it. I was like, "Ooh, propulsive," and then I like overused it, and now I've put propulsive back in the drawer for now. But yes, propulsive. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's kind of like moist. Like it just kind of has just a slightly yeah. off angle. Like, yeah. Grossness to it. <laughs> so tell me, so you're now you're in terms of what's next, you're working on your new, your new slash old novel and resurrecting it. And that's, is that your full time? Like, are you able to work on it now while you're in isolation or? <laughs> I mean, not really. I'm trying. I'm trying very hard. We have not, I'll be honest, I have not figured out my quarantine rhythm, mm-hmm. having two kids home, homeschooling, you know, keeping my house in order, cooking three meals a day, plus snacks, so many snacks. I don't, I don't understand all the snacks. And my kids want dinner every night, like every night they want to eat. Theoretically, I am writing, but I have not actually had the focus required to to write the way I need to write right now. I'm actually haven't even reading as much as I want to be. I just, I find my brain is sort of so scattered, but I'm trying. I'm hoping next week I'll, I'll figure it out. I've been hearing that a lot. You're not alone in that. <laughs> yeah, I need to quit Twitter. I think that'll change things for me. 
I do not let myself look at the news until like the evening. Otherwise I can't get anything done during the day. That's my newest thing. That's really smart. Like the world could burn down. Like if something major happens, my husband will tell me, but I don't look. I just don't look. That's really smart. What advice do you have to aspiring authors? My number one piece of advice to aspiring authors is to read and to read everything, but not to read as a reader, but to read as a writer. So when you're reading a book and it particularly works for you and it's flowing and it and it's magic, stop the magic, rewind and figure out why it's magical. Why does this character matter to you? Why is this plot interesting? On a sentence level, why is the, the prose singing for you? If you're reading a book and it kind of isn't capturing you, do exactly the same thing. Ask the questions, why isn't it working? What is this author doing? What is this author doing right? What is this author doing wrong? And so every book is a masterclass in novel writing. Hmm. And then sit your ass down and write. That's the other other important tip. (laughs) You got to (laughs) write. I love that. Well, thank you, Julie. Thanks for coming on Mom's Down Time to Read Books. Thanks for the book and this really interesting discussion. Thanks so much for having me. I probably should have talked more about the book. I'm sorry. I went off on this one. No, this is all related to the book. You know, it's not like we were talking about like, I don't know, learning bridge or something. I don't know. Anyway. (laughs) How to source toilet paper. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Hang in there. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for Audible sponsoring this episode. Get your amazing deal, $4.95 for six months, for your first six months for their holiday Audible Plus offer. Go to audible.com slash Zibby or text Zibby to 500-500. Thanks, Audible. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mm-hmm.